Welcome to a special interview episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Timonini. On today's episode, I'm in conversation with Tony Award winner John Rubenstein. He, of course, made his Broadway debut more than 50 years ago as the title character in the Broadway musical Pippin. He then went on to win a Tony Award in the original Broadway production of Children of a Lesser God and has since been seen on Broadway in Fools, The Cane Mutiny Court Martial, Hurley Burley, M. Butterfly, Ragtime, the revival of Pippin, and most recently, Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. Currently, John can be seen off-Broadway in the new one-person play, Eisenhower, This Piece of Ground, in which he plays the former president, Dwight D. Eisenhower, looking back at his life, his career, and his legacy after his presidential term is over. In our conversation, we talk about who Dwight Eisenhower was, both as a person and as a leader, we actually get into the story of John Rubenstein actually meeting Dwight Eisenhower when he was a young child and how his impression of the former president has changed going through this process. We also talk about the recent 50th anniversary concert in which many of the original Broadway company of Pippin reunited. John tells me what his favorite song of the show is and in a twist that was very unexpected but incredibly humbling, if not something that took me off my normal guard John said that he actually had a question for me because he is a regular listener of Today on Broadway and Broadway Radio. So that was a thrill for me, as you can imagine. Of course, in the show notes, we will have information on how you can see Eisenhower, this piece of ground at the theater at St. Clement's, currently scheduled to run through July 30th. All right, with all of that out of the way, here's my conversation with John Rubenstein. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to do this today. Sure, it's a pleasure. Pardon me for chewing. I just finished finishing a meal, and I didn't want to be late. No, no, no. You're totally fine. What did you have for your meal? I had tomato and an avocado and a couple of fried eggs and some cereal. Oh, that sounds good. Is that a good uh, a good meal to get you the energy for a performance tonight? No, I don't have a performance tonight. It's my day off. Oh, okay, but. but the- um, Nah, I just eat what I want to eat. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's probably uh, the, the best way to do it. So yep. um, now correct me if I'm wrong. You did have a performance last night, though, right? Yeah, that was our first preview. Gotcha. So the first first show in New York was last night. How did how did everything go? It really went. I have to, you know, uh, <laughs> be honest. It went fantastically well. We had a big house, which I didn't expect. And um, they were on every word and at the end they gave us a big rousing standing ovation which was lovely because they got it they the the play is a wonderful piece of writing and i'm lucky to get the honor of being able to stand out there and deliver it and and the audience uh, uh really got something from it and expressed that at the end so it was great that's awesome we- You've done this show before uh, out in Los Angeles, and you're bringing it to New York. Have there been substantive changes, stuff that you've learned from that previous uh, that previous run till now? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, that was it wasn't considered an out of town tryout, but ultimately that's what it sort of turns into. When you first do a play of any kind, uh, you know, those first audiences and and what the performers take in and what the writers observe and the director um, that immediately the next morning you have ideas. Wait a minute, that thing could work better if we did this or, you know, they didn't seem to understand that or they were shuffling and, you know, 
walking out of the theater in droves when we did that, so we should cut that. So yeah, you do start uh, immediately thinking of improvements, and then if you're lucky enough to get another production, like we do now, uh, yeah, we, we've worked on this play very, very hard for the last five, six months. And obviously, you've been a, a part of creating so many incredible shows and, and works over your career. But I would imagine the process is fairly different when it is a one-person show. You are the only person on stage. Is, has that given you either a different creative challenge or a different creative opportunity to contribute to the overall piece because it is just literally you standing on the stage by yourself? Well, I mean, I guess the dynamic uh, changes a little bit. If you're the only member of the cast, what you say carries just that little bit of more weight, you know? Um, but I've always had a big mouth. And even <laughs> when I had my very, very first job <clears throat> on Broadway, which was in Pippin, uh, and I was, a, I was a newcomer, you know, I had no track record. I mean, I'd done a lot of plays, but, you know, I'd done bus and truck tours and summer stock, and I knew what I was doing, but I was, you know, I was new to New York. And um, I, I felt extremely comfortable talking to Bob Fosse and Steve Schwartz and Roger Herson about, hey, why don't we do this? And Or this is dumb. This isn't working. <laughs> Can we please do something else? And they listened to me with great respect. That's one of the, that, that was one of the great joys of working with those guys is uh, they didn't treat me like some rookie that they were doing a favor for by allowing <laughs> me to be in their big show. They treated me like one of the people working on the play. And since I had a lot to do and sing and say in that play, they listened to me. And that, that made me feel very, very good and it brought the best out in me. And I, of course, listened very, very closely to them and we worked together. It was, it was uh, terrific. So now doing a one-man play, it changes just a little bit, but not very much. That's great. I mean, that's I, I know that that's not uh, always the case for every actor. So uh, that's that sounds like a, a a number of wonderful opportunities. But one of the things you mentioned about that first performance is that people got it, um, which is you know you look at a show about a fairly well-known you know public political figure, and you think, okay, I know a general sense about Dwight D. Eisenhower, but from your perspective. What is there to get beyond the biographical information that we might generally be aware of about his life? Well, I think that's really what this play is about. It's showing through. I'm not really uh, um, saying exact words that Eisenhower said. I'm not quoting speeches or reenacting moments sure. from his life. Um, which many, uh, you know, sort of one-person plays about famous historical figures, they do take that choice, and that that can work very well. But in this case, we're doing a play about a man reevaluating his life, his career, trying to, on the spot in front of you, figure out what, if anything, his legacy might be what his regrets might be and what his things that he's proud of he can talk about. And over it, you do get a personal view 
of this man, not just a historical view. And that personal view is from stuff that he wrote and stuff that he said and that people near him heard him say and wrote about him and quoted him as having said. So almost nothing that I say is something that the playwright invented out of thin air. It's all based on actual Eisenhower deeds or statements or speeches or taped interviews or whatever they, they might be, or books that he himself wrote or things that were written about him by other people who had talked to him. So since it's authentic like that, and you get this personal view of a man who really, really cared about the people he was responsible for, um, it's very moving and it can be very funny in places. Um, and you learn a lot more about him than just facts and figures about the events and the sort of accomplishments in his career. A, a lot of the press materials and the reviews that came out of Los Angeles talk about how resonant this story about this one political figure, this one president was in today's day and age. He, you know, harkens back to generations and decades ago, but a lot of the lessons that we learn and some of the things you learn about, not just from the biographical standpoint, but the human standpoint are, are really good things to learn and keep in mind based off of everything else that is going around in the world today. What maybe have you learned from him, at, you know, kind of going through this process that you think would probably be beneficial for some politicians from either side of the aisle uh, to keep in mind in today's day and age? Oh, boy. I mean, that's really, you're asking me to tell you the whole play. That's really one of the main things that makes this play so gripping. So sort of, you, you can't, you can't almost believe that you're hearing Eisenhower in 1962, which is the year this play takes place, a year and a half after his second term as president. You can't believe that he is saying and concerned about and putting forward this sort of, in, in many cases, a warning, but in other cases, just sort of describing, trying to describe his own feelings and attitudes and motivations, um, you can't believe how resonant they are to exactly what's going, going on today, going wrong today in many cases. And you sort of say to yourself, gosh, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if at least one or two or three of our present day politicians thought this way, knew what this man knew, took history, as as importantly as he did to learn lessons from and had the big heart and compassion for the people that he was responsible for. He was responsible for those soldiers that he sent into Normandy on D-Day, every one of them. And he thought about that. That was part of what concerned him. And then when he became president of the United States, he cared deeply about all of the citizens of the country that he was the president of, he was the representative for. And we don't hear that kind of tone or language, and certainly not that kind of uh, legislation from our present day people as much as we, as we should and as we wish we could. 
when you have done this show in the past, was was that the thing that the audiences responded to if they saw you after the show or at a stage door or on the street or something when they said that, you know, they kind of told you their impression and what impacted them the most was the different kind of approach to leadership. Is that the biggest difference that you've heard from audiences that they've seen between Eisenhower and who we are working with today? Yes, I would say pretty much that was it. It, it, it. It's what moves you because it reminds you that this country, this United States that we stand in baseball stadiums and say, God bless America and all that, you know, we do it sort of uh, by rote. And sometimes it has a, a nasty sort of militaristic, jingoistic, you know, American exceptionalist kind of ring to it. So that the God bless America isn't heartfelt. It's rather, I don't know, it's it's rather, uh, well, xenophobic in some kind of way. Um, you hear this man talking about his life, his early life, what he learned from his parents and from the, the era he grew up in, and then his war experiences, and then his experiences as president. Uh, and and you sort of, yeah, you say, why can't we have that now? Why is it so hard for these people who run for these offices and they spend these millions and millions and millions of dollars on their campaigns and they finally do get elected, whether by landslide or by, you know, 700 votes. And then it seems to more often than not devolve into some kind of a power thing and about perks and private jet planes and it, it and and amassing money making plans of how they will make giant fortunes after they leave office because they'll get you know five hundred thousand dollars to speak at some university or they'll you know they or they'll get a radio show or a or a television news place it, it stops being about the work, the hard and complicated work that really they signed up for, that we elected them to do. It becomes way less about that and more about just self-aggrandizement, making your name famous, coming out in the press and on the early morning Sunday shows whenever you can and bloviating and then, and then turning that into cash. Eisenhower was not the the first president that you were uh, alive during his tenure, but I would imagine because of where the years fall that he might be the first that you have any real memory of. And please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but through the process of this show, how did your appreciation and understanding of the, the man and as the leader and as the president change uh, from what you remember from your childhood? Well, it changed uh, radically. It changed very, very much. Yes, you're absolutely right. I was born during Truman, um, and I don't remember him at all. Uh, you know, I, I do remember those days uh, where we were uh, we were taught to hide under our desks in school in mm -hmm. case there was an air raid. And I remember lying in my bed as a little boy, and I would hear a plane go overhead, and I would be scared and I would want to hide under my bed just in case it was an air raid at night. So I do remember that era, but I don't remember the personage of Harry Truman. But I definitely remember 
Eisenhower and we all wore little I like Ike buttons. You know, I didn't I don't remember Adlai Stevenson. I remember his name, but I didn't know anything about him, really. And then then Eisenhower was my president for eight years. And at one point when I was, I think, something around nine or ten, I was in Washington, D.C. with my parents and they knew Sherman Adams, who was Ike's um, chief of staff. And wow. Sherman Adams took us through the White House, gave us a, a tour. And at one point, he came up to a big room where Eisenhower was talking to a group of people. And he sort of waved at him. And Ike stepped down off whatever podium or thing he was on there and wove his way through that crowd and came up to me and my sister and my mother oh, wow. and my father. We were standing there. And Sherman said, these are the Rubensteins. And he said, well, it's so nice to meet you all. And he bent down and he shook my hand, you know, and my sisters and, and my parents. And they talked for a while. And then he went back to his work. So I did meet him. And, uh, and that, that was, I will really never forget that. That was very exciting. But I still didn't know much about him. And over the next, you know, whatever that were, six years or seven of his two presidencies, to me, he was just, you know, a very friendly grandpa type figure. Very nice. I would see him on TV every now and then talking in his sort of Midwestern way that he did. And um, and, and he played a lot of golf that I knew. <laughs> and then it was uh, all about uh, Kennedy. And Kennedy, I was a young teenager, and that was the sort of awakening of politics and the presidency and all of that stuff for for my generation, I'm the sort of older end of the baby boomers. And for us, yeah, Eisenhower was a great hero from the war. We knew that. And he was a, a nice guy as a president, but didn't know very much about what he did or didn't do politically. And then when Kennedy came up, that sort of opened a, a new curtain on a new stage. And we young people were in, extremely excited and involved in politics and have been, I, I would say, for many of us, ever since. So doing this play, in answer to your question, completely opened my eyes to who Eisenhower really was and what he actually did and said and stood for and fought for. And uh, it, I think that's very much what the audience gets, the older people like me, yeah. they sit there and they say, oh, yeah, we remember Ike. And oh, my gosh, I didn't realize that he was doing all this kind of stuff and thinking and talking and and future vision. He saw into the future. He cared about what not just his personal legacy, as seems to be so much the obsession of politicians nowadays, but he saw what his actions and the actions of others around him would do to people coming 20, 30, 40, 50 years later. And he was extremely accurate about his predictions. Um, and I think the audiences get that too. The older ones see that and the younger ones who really don't know anything about Eisenhower at all. They might know that he did something to do with D-Day and that he was the president before Kennedy. They might know that, but that's pretty much it. And I've seen so many in our performances, young people come to me afterwards and say, oh, my gosh, I didn't have any idea that this guy was was as amazing as he is, as he was. I want to read books about him now. I want to 
figure it out. I want our politicians to reflect that kind of approach more than they do. So that's been very, very exciting. Yeah, I can hear the excitement uh, in your voice talking about it, which obviously you always want to hear from from a performer diving into something like this, especially a, a one person show. But looking back on your career, you, you've you done so much uh, over your entire career dating back to even before, you know, Pippin, like we talked about. But is that excitement kind of what keeps bringing you back, whether it's to the stage or something else? Obviously, the paycheck and the insurance uh, days is are, are great as well. But um, is it that excitement of of learning and then passing on the knowledge and creating something for an audience? Is, is that the thing that keeps you doing this over and over year after year? Well, it certainly does in, in the case of this play. I can't pretend that <clears throat> every character that I've played and that I've enjoyed and loved and felt just as lucky as hell to get to play uh, were, were roles that imparted to the audience some kind of deeply felt, you know, uh, personal quality that I, I that I felt it was my job now, and it was exciting for me to give them and and let them carry that with them through their lives. No, I've played horrible, horrible villains and silly, you know, slapsticky, funny people. That the oh, the, the excitement comes in in entertaining. And in just sure. giving people a laugh and, a, and, a, and an escape from whatever might not be going so well in their own lives. But um, but yeah, every now and then, I mean, you know, I, I loved doing ragtime, playing Tate mm-hmm. in ragtime. It, 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 uh, the immigrant, you know, that word almost is a is a <laughs> is a foul four letter word these days. If you say immigrant, oh, my gosh, you know, we've been we've been brainwashed a little bit by our. Uh, previous president and by the the sort of right wing politics that that have emerged out of the earth with him um, to think of immigrants, which basically we all are. I'm a first generation. My parents were Polish. Uh, My two of my siblings were born in in Argentina and Poland. Uh, So, yeah, we're all immigrants. We're all sons or, or grandsons of immigrants. Uh, that's what makes this country what it is. It should be maybe one of the most valued group of people rather than the most trodden down and, and belittled. Um, so this play does that. And Ragtime had a huge uh, theme of that. They also had it about, you know, the, the, the racial prejudice, of course, and, and the sort of the upper crust detachment you know, from all of those things. Uh, so I, I loved, I couldn't wait to get to the theater every night and do ragtime for those reasons. And they're a little bit similar to what I feel about Ike, but there've been many in between that, that, <laughs> that weren't about that. They were just about, <laughs> you know, kicking it and having some great fun on stage for the people. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that either. No, no. Well, I, I appreciate you speaking so passionately uh, about this show. It sounds like a, uh, a a fantastic experience in the theater, but I, I've got a couple more questions. And before we wrap up here real quick, I know something else that was probably an incredible experience. I know at least from the audience members, because I know people who were there, uh, but hopefully for you all as well. But I know you recently had a, a reunion concert at 54 Below for Pippin. What, what was that experience like to get so many of those people together singing those songs on a stage again? Wow. It, that was... <laughs> 
I don't know. It was sort of surreal, I have to say. You know, when you get to my age, your life seems like it was so short, even <laughs> though one could argue that if you, you if you hit your late 70s, you're sort of, uh, that's a long life. That's a good, good old life, you know. And But so the 50 years and several months ago, we opened Pippin on Broadway. And almost two years ago, we opened it in... Uh, in Washington DC for the very first time. And um, to get together with, with some of those actors that I did it with originally, uh, it, was, it was extremely moving, you know, and there I was at, at my ripe old age, still trying to croak out those songs that <laughs> it was hard for me to croak out when I was 25 years old. Um, uh, it, that was that was a challenge. So I was nervous. I was, I I wasn't uh, entirely <clears throat> celebratory or jubilant doing it. But I I loved being with those people. We laughed and laughed and laughed when we probably should have been rehearsing a little more seriously. Um, but it was great fun. And then the people who came to Studio Fifty Four, I knew a few of them. They were friends, but most of them were just folks who bought tickets to see a bunch of old people uh, reenact a, a show that was really about young people to the greatest extent. And uh, it had to be a little bizarre, but they seemed to really, really enjoy themselves. And so it, it was it was a memorable uh, couple of evenings for me. Do you ever I mean, is it is it something that especially having been 50 years now, are you able to really recognize how much that show means to people and how the messages and the, and the, not just the songs and, and all of those things and the iconic choreography and stuff, but like really the messages of that show have really continued to live in people's hearts for many, many decades after the fact. Yeah. I mean, it, it surprised me. I was obviously elated i don't think that's not that's too weak of a word when i was offered that part um and and my my dream of one day maybe getting some small part in a show in new york uh came true in such a sort of gigantic way um but even with all of that i had really pretty heavy doubts about the 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 play itself you know it was a little silly and and about, there was a lot of stuff about falconry and and visigoths and stuff and i thought oh <laughs> you know it's it's cute i get it you know i like the music but what what are we really doing here and then when we opened uh, in October of 1972, the reviews pretty much reflected that. And they said, well, you know, Bob Fosse is a genius and the dancers are the best on Broadway and Ben Vereen is a star who will light up the skies forever. Uh, the sets and costumes are out of this world. The lighting is is fantastic. But, uh, eh, you know, for the, for the actual show, yeah. Not, it's fun seeing Irene Ryan up there, you know, but it was middling. It was middling to relatively poor reviews. And I said, see, I, I, I thought so. Oh, well, we'll be gone in a few weeks. And then Fosse came up with that television ad, which was the very first television 
advertisement for a Broadway play. It had never been done before. Um, and he just showed 60 seconds of Ben Vereen and, and Pam Sousa and uh, Candy Brown dancing, no words. And then an announcer came at the end and said, you've just seen 60 seconds of Pippin. If you want to see the whole show, come to the Imperial Theater and blah, 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 blah. And that turned it around. And people started coming to that show. And then I would be greeted in the street after the show by, by people who had seen it. And they said, oh, my God, this is about me. This is about my life. <clears throat> Pardon me. This makes me, this gives me hope for my own future. And then over the decades since, I've, I've seen it done. I've been invited to different productions of it in high schools, in colleges, in amateur theaters, in regional theaters. Uh, people love this show. They love it. The people who do it love it and the audiences. I did a two-year tour of it in Diane Paulus's version of it. I saw you in it. Yeah, it was fantastic. Uh, playing the king. And we took it all around the country. And no matter where we were, the people went nuts. They just, they love it. They love Pippin. And I, I've changed my mind about it. I, I don't, you know... I don't belittle it anymore. I now say, yeah, they hit something. <laughs> Roger Herson and Stephen Schwartz, they, they, they got something of that era. It was in the middle of the Vietnam War and all that business. Uh, and they, they turned it into something that mostly young people, but, but older people as well, can, can take hope from and can take encouragement and strength from. And God bless him for it. And I, I just <laughs> I just lucked out to be in the middle of it. Well, I think many fans from many decades of, of experiencing uh, you in that show with the different productions and from the original cast album would disagree that you were just lucky to be there. But uh, I appreciate the sentiment nonetheless. But let's let's wrap up with one more uh, question about the show you are currently doing. Eisenhower, this piece of ground. Where do you rank Eisenhower in the list of greatest presidents now. I know that is a, a general conceit in the show, but uh, now that you have been through this process in developing the show and doing it in Los Angeles and now bringing it to New York, where does he fall on your personal list? Well, um, the the ranking and the listing are a, a, a very important part of the show itself. So uh, not meaning that this is a, a, a reveal like in Game of Thrones or Succession, <laughs> I don't want to be a spoiler. Okay. All right, uh, fair enough. To talk very specifically, but I would rank him very high. I don't pretend to be, I, I do love history and I love reading history, but I don't pretend to be a, a very knowledgeable historian. So if you start, you know, talking about rankings of presidents and we talk about Rutherford B. Hayes or Chester Arthur <laughs> or so forth, I, I can't pretend that I'm going to be able to talk to you very much about them. But I would rank him very very high based on the accomplishments that he that he pulled off that he got done and his character and his desire to leave this country better than he found it which i believe he did that's a the perfect endorsement that you can give for somebody who is uh, in a leadership position like that so well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this. I have been a fan for, for years and I'm fascinated by this project and I wish you the 
absolute best during your run uh, through July. And uh, I hope that everybody uh, that sees it enjoys it as much as it sounds like last night's audience did. Well, thank you. I hope you get to see it. I'm a fan of yours, too. I listen to your radio oh. podcast virtually every day. Oh, my gosh. And, that's uh, I can't believe that. That's, uh, oh, that's a highlight I, moment. I'm, I'm a big fan of Broadway radio and, and have been for many years. And so... Uh, I'm I'm really delighted to get to talk to you personally. <laughs> well, my goodness, that's uh, that is going on my resume. I'm putting it under my special special skills section that that you <laughs> said that. So I appreciate it. But I have one question for you. Yes, please. Why don't you move to New York? <laughs> you know, it, it's one of those things. I've lived so after I graduated college, I went. And my first job was in Chicago. My next job was in r- roughly the Kansas City area, and then I moved to Atlanta. All this time, my my parents and my brother and sister all lived in Florida, and I got to the point where I loved the jobs that I was doing, but I missed my family, and so I moved down to Florida and have kind of found a way to do a little bit of the stuff that I love professionally and and with theater while still being close to my family. In fact, I'm doing this interview. I picked up my nephew from his summer camp. He's in the other room right now. So having those opportunities to be around family is uh, is really why. And the fact that despite the fact that I grew up in the Midwest, I don't know that my blood can take the cold anymore, John. It's uh, I, I have oh, been yeah. I've been weakened by the southern weather, and uh, I plan my trips to New York as well as I can to avoid the coldest months of the year. But if it wasn't for my fa- if my family had still been in Ohio, which is much closer to New York, I probably I probably would be there by now. But that's really it. It's just just family and maybe like a five percent weather bump in there as well. Well, that makes perfect sense. I mean, family. When any of us kicks off, finally, we're not going to be thinking about the plays we did or the (laughs) plays we saw or the money we made or didn't make. We're going to be thinking about our family. That's that's the closest thing to every one of us. And so that makes absolute sense. But I just wish it was easier for you to see more plays. (laughs) I know. Well, let me tell you, I had a a New Year's resolution to see 52 plays outside of New York, because I can rack up, as you probably know, I guess, um, when I come to New York, I can rack up a lot of shows, but I wanted to make sure that I saw 52 shows outside of New York this year. I had 46 last year. I will tell you that this Friday, I will see my 52nd show outside of New York. Uh, I included some theatrical concerts as well. Like I saw Mandy Patinkin in concert, so I counted that in Leslie Odom Jr. But uh, I'm trying to see as much as I can, even if it's not in New York. Well, that's great. You said that you saw the the tour uh, of Diane Paulus's Pippin that I was in. Where mm-hmm. did you see it? Uh, here in Orlando. Orlando. Uh-huh. Yeah. So uh, I did not get to see it in New York. So the fact that it had had come down here was uh, was stupendous, and I loved it. Having grown up on that cast album and and listened to. Um, you know, it's funny. I think everybody talks, thinks about, you know, Corner of the Sky. But to me, uh, Extraordinary was always the song that I loved uh, no kidding. more than anything else. So uh, they added a- that there was a different song in, in its place. Really? And it, yeah, it, it wasn't really working. I, I, I've all, uh, how did it go? I'm only marking time with you. Da, 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 da. That was the song. And it was okay, but it was sort of pleasant, Laura Nero-ish, you know, sort of yeah. and and both Fosse and Steve Schwartz uh, said, "Nah, Pippin needs to be 
more angry and frustrated. And so they wrote, uh, he wrote uh, Extraordinary in Washington, and we added it in. So that they actually added it in during the out-of-town tryout, not in between? Yes, yes, during the out-of-town tryout. That and the love song. There was a different oh, love wow. song. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. I actually, I have the, the book, and I actually spoke to the author kind of chronicling the... Uh, the creation of the show, uh, I guess it was released a year or so ago. Um, oh, right. Uh-huh. And uh, so I've read through most of it. I, Unlike you, I don't read a lot of uh, history or nonfiction books. Uh, I'm more stick to fiction, but I've read enough of it to kind of, you know, learn even more about that process than that. But I don't I didn't realize that those two songs were added there because those are obviously two of the, the best and two of my favorites from the show. Yeah, they're good. My favorite, they, I get asked that a lot. What's your favorite song from Pip and I? I always say Morning Glow. Mm. I love that song. It, it's stolen from Joni Mitchell a little bit. Mm. Um, you know, both sides now and Morning Glow, you could almost sing them together. Oh, yeah, that's true. I never thought about that. But still, I, it's properly, it's well stolen, well borrowed. And I, I love it. I love singing it and, and I love listening to it, too. What is it about that one that that always stuck out for you? Well, it might be just that that surge of hopefulness, that optimism, mm-hmm. and you know, here we go. We're we've got the the ability. We've got the reins in our hands. Let's go and make everything better. That kind of you know the sort of stuff we were talking about with Eisenhower. Yeah, uh, that kind of positivity. But then I just also like the music it, it, the the chord changes and the, the big builds in it uh are, it's just beautiful and it's fun to sing and it and he wrote it with a big chorus singing in harmony and that it, it was always exhilarating to to perform that song on stage mm, that's great it's a good act one closer as well so uh so well, we didn't amazing. have an act one or two uh, back in the day we, oh yeah our pippin was a one act that's right. And the re- was was the revival the first time that they that they split it yes. in two? Mm, uh-huh. Fascinating. Yeah. That's great. Well, I it was an honor to talk to you in general and to know that you actually know who I am is an even uh, an even greater delight than I could have imagined. Oh, I was into so excited it. to get to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Hopefully we'll get a chance to uh, do it again. I am going to be uh, in town in August. So if for some reason you are still doing this show longer than initially planned, I will definitely make sure that I am there because uh, I, I would love to be able to see it. Great. Okay. Well, I'd, I'd love to meet you. If you do come, come backstage after and say hi. I will definitely do that. Thank you so much. Okay. Yeah. All right. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. <laughs>